And you may be seated. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Haggai. If you're in one of these black pew Bibles, it's on page 791. We have finished our study in Romans chapter 2, our summer study, and so this fall we are beginning our study on the Reformation, uh, Reformation, Restoration Prophets. Uh, we're going to look at Haggai and Malachi. Uh, at some point in the future we may come back and, and deal with Zechariah. Now why are they some ca- sometimes called the Restoration Prophets? Well, it was their work, it was their task. When Israel came back from exile, it was the work of these prophets to rebuild the people spiritually into the people of God. We're going to read the first 11 verses of Haggai chapter 1. But first, let me pray for the reading and the preaching of God's Word. Heavenly Father, we do come to you this morning. We do come recognizing that, uh, that your word is the breath of life. You speak and we live. We ask that you would breathe into us life. We ask that your word would bring life into us. We ask, Lord, that we would be humbled before you, able and willing to receive your word by the power of your spirit. I pray, Lord, for my own mind this morning as I lead us through this passage. I pray that you'd give me clarity of thought so that I might speak clearly. And I ask that you would live willing ears to those that are listening, to be able to understand and rightly apply your word, the word of truth. You tell us in your high priestly prayer that it is the truth that sanctifies. So may truth be spoken and may truth be heard this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Haggai 11, uh, Haggai chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the second, uh, sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages 
does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills on the grain, and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. These were some miserable times for Israel. And it's not what they expected. Have you ever had high expectations? Only to not have them met? It's not pleasant when you pour yourself into some sort of work only to discover that all your efforts have ended or resulted in failure. And what happens at such times? Disappointment. Disappointment. And what happens if you continue in this state of disappointment where you continue to work and it continues not to result in the expected results? When you continue in this state of disappointment, you eventually enter into a state of discouragement. And as you are prolonged in this state of discouragement, you find yourself sliding into a state of depression. And as you continue in this state of depression, and as it goes on, you find yourself in a state of despair. And in that state of despair, it's only a small step to death. Naomi Judd's suicide, I think, is a prime example of this very spiral of destruction. Disappointment leading to discouragement, leading to depression, leading to despair, leading to death. That's the pattern. And Israel is in that pattern. You know, when we think of Israel post-exile, this is not normally the, 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 the way we like or would want to think of them. Yeah, maybe they sure had some problems, but we typically, when we think of Israel coming back from exile, we, we think of things being rebuilt and everything being good. Everything being fine and dandy. And there's a reason to think that that's the way things should have been. In fact, the prophets of old, before the exile, prophesied that Israel would return to a state of grandeur. Amos chapter 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the Plowmen shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who seeds. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. 
and I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities, and they shall inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. What a promise that Amos gives to his people. And listen to what Jeremiah prophesied. Again, this is before the exile. Jeremiah 24, verse 5, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. Right? There was an expectation that when Israel came back, when Judah came back from their exile, that things would return and they would recover and be restored to the greatness that they had once experienced. However, that's not seeming to happen. Life is not what they imagined it to be. And so Israel is now beginning to spiral downward in this pattern of destruction. Now there's a word that we often use to describe this situation. The word is backsliding. Right? Rather than believe the promises of good and act in faith and obedience, backsliding compromises the faith. Backsliding rationalizes disobedience. Backsliding turns its focus off of Christ the Redeemer and off the promises of, of grace and of His Word, and it turns the focus onto the pleasures and treasures of this world. And to those who are under the influence of the Word of God and of the morality of the Word of God, the result is misery. J.C. Ryle once wrote, It is a miserable thing to be a backslider. Of all the unhappy things that can befall a man, I suppose backsliding is the worst. A stranded ship, a broken-winged eagle, a garden overrun with weeds, a harp without strings, a church in ruins, all these are sad sights. But a backslider is sadder still. Now, that true grace shall never be extinguished and a true union with Christ will never be broken off, I, I, I feel no doubt. But Ryle says, I do believe that a man may fall away so far that he shall lose sight of his own grace and shall despair of his own salvation. And if this is not hell, it is certainly the next thing to it. I think J.C. Ryle is right. Backsliding is terrible. And Israel is in the midst of it. Some of you may be in the midst of it at times. You may have been there before. You may be there now. And it will be miserable. But God, in His grace and in His mercy for His people, will at some point stop that backsliding. 
Listen to what Ezekiel prophesies about God's elect. Ezekiel 37.23 says, They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. It's a message of hope. God promises to his people that there is hope. God will persevere with his people even when his people might not be persevering with him. All the backslidings in which they have sinned promises that he will undo. He will stop. He will save them from it. This is the ministry of Haggai. This restoration in the book of Haggai will only take uh, about four months. That's it, four months. And God will deliver them from this particular spiral of destruction. Now, how is he going to do that? Well, the, uh, the pathway of this restoration is laid out for us in this first section that we have read this morning. How does God bring about his salvation? How does he preserve his people? Well, first, first God begins this work of restoration by providing the evidence that his people are indeed backsliding. Right? Uh, one of the issues with backsliders is they don't actually notice that they're backsliding until it's revealed to them. And so God begins in our text, by revealing to his people that they are backsliding. Now, how does he do it? What's the evidence? Well, there are two uh, pieces of evidence I want to draw your attention to in verses 1 and 2. The first piece of evidence is found in the very first name that is given in this book or in this uh, the, these writings of Haggai. In the second year of Darius the king, now, this might be very easy to overlook, but this phrase clues us in that things are not the way they should be. If you look back at some of the other pre-exilic prophets, you'll find similar statements. First uh, Kings 14.25, in the fifth year of King Rehoboam. Isaiah 6.1, in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah 36, 1, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. Jeremiah 25, 1, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Through, throughout the Old Testament, we find these statements, we find these time stamps in the so-and-so year of King so-and-so. Right? There is this connection that takes place the, 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 the emphasizes a year and it's connected to a king of Israel. To a king that's on the throne of Israel. But Haggai is pointing out here that God's people, while they're back in the promised land, they don't have a covenant king on their throne right now. Darius is not of the line of David. The covenant relationship between God and his people has not yet been restored back to that place where it should be. 
Now, in God's mercy, Darius is a very friendly king to Israel. In fact, uh, God is working his benevolence towards Israel through this foreign king. But the presence of a non-believer over them indicates that things are not the way it should be. In fact, think of the Davidic covenant where God promised to David that there would be a king from David's line ruling over Israel. This very first name indicates things in Israel are not the way they should be. There's a problem within the covenant relationship between God and his people. The second piece of evidence for the people's backsliding is the issue of priorities. God quotes the people here and he identifies a heart condition that is underneath all of their problems. These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, God's going to expose a a lie and an error within the hearts of the people in a few verses down. But this basic error here that is being stressed is that the people have their priorities wrong. The people are not outright denying that worship ought to be taking place. They're not coming forthrightly and rejecting the worship of Almighty God. They're not doing that. They're simply neglecting the necessity of worship. They have other things they have to attend to first. You know what the number one cause of backsliding, I believe, is? It's this very thing. It's the neglect of public worship. This is one of the things that's been revealed, I believe, in the in the uh, the COVID shutdown of the American church. Right? We 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 discover our condition here in America in the American church is not any different than the people in Haggai's day. Right? How many people stopped going to church? And I'll just watch online. Right? Not how many people wanted to go to church and they couldn't find a church that's open. That's a different issue. But how many people didn't even want to go to church? They found an excuse, a reason to stay home. They weren't disappointed by the fact that they couldn't participate in corporate worship. There are still reports and studies coming out that are showing that upwards of 50% of the people who stopped going to church because of COVID, have not yet returned to church. What's that reveal? I think it reveals a heart whose priority is not worship. I think it reveals that God is not the highest priority, that Christ is not the highest priority. In our women's Bible study on Friday, Exodus 35, deals with the implementation of, of everything needed to get tabernacle worship going. All the gifts that are to be brought and presented right, are, 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 are to come. But before we even get to that in Exodus 35, you have Moses setting aside the Sabbath day as holy. If the Lord isn't the Lord of your calendar, can you really call Him Lord? 
Right? Do you really think you can keep the commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 if you don't keep the fourth commandment? To honor the Lord's day and keep it holy? And then besides the priority of duty, there is the issue of the affections of the heart. Right? Love governs our priorities. The things we love determines how we use our time and our resources. Right? Things we love more get more of our time and energy. The things we love less get less of those resources. So when people choose football over worship, what's that tell you about the affections of their hearts? When worship is not the highest priority, when worship is neglected, there's something wrong in that covenant relationship, isn't there? This is the evidence of backsliding there in Israel. Worship was neglected. The covenant relationship was not what it should be. The priorities of the people were not what they should be. Now the follow-up question, well, if it's not the way it should be, well, how did the people get into that situation? Right? Where does this faltering faith come from? What causes it? What causes backsliding? Well, in our text, there are two main ingredients that led to the backsliding of the people of Israel. Earthly-mindedness, number one, and number two was discontentment. These two feed off each other. But I also found it interesting. Ezra chapter 4. Uh, Ezra is uh, the, the historical book that kind of gives us the historical narrative of what was taking place during the, uh, the ministry of, of the Restoration Prophets. Uh, Ezra chapter 4 is specifically dealing with this time period in the, in the days of, of Israel. Ezra 4.4 4 says this, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. You know how long this lasted? Sixteen years. According to Ezra, the oppression and the opposition coming from the other people that lived in the and around the city of Jerusalem, that oppression, that lasted sixteen years. And while Ezra notes this in a historical fashion, Haggai doesn't mention it at all. And I begin to, well, why not? I begin to ask uh, Haggai, why didn't you mention that there is all this external opposition and, 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 and tribulation being brought upon the people of God from outside? Haggai, why didn't you bring that up? It kind of seems important, right? I think Haggai could have very easily put some of the blame on the other nations. He didn't. And I think the reason for this is because our response to external opposition is conditioned or is, is, is directed by the condition of our own heart. So that external opposition obstacles, if our heart is growing, if our heart is drawing to the Lord, these oppositions that we face merely become 
mountains that are moved by faith so that we can come to Christ. But if our heart is not set on the Lord, these obstacles, these external circumstances compound and exasperate us and increase our disappointment or discouragement or depression or despair. So what Haggai is actually focusing here is not on the externals of their situation. He's dealing with the internals. He's dealing with the issues of their heart that is causing their backsliding. And what are those two? The first cause of backsliding is earthly mindedness. Earthly mindedness. Let me define earthly mindedness by having you turn to Colossians chapter 3. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Paul spells it out for us. What should possess our minds and our hearts? What should possess our priorities and our affections? Verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Heavenly mindedness connects all the externals of our life. It connects them to Christ and it connects them to the life, to the eternal life to come. It asks the question, well, how does this tribulation, this trial that I'm suffering with now, how is this going to affect my relationship with Christ? How is this going to affect my eternal destiny? Earthly mindedness, say, is the absence of a spiritual or eternal perspective. Earthly mindedness kind of neglects Christ, sets him aside. So going back to Haggai now, the Lord says to his people, verse 4, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now notice, the problem here is not the wainscoting, the wainscoting in the homes of the people. The problem is not that they are, uh, uh, that they ha- might have some good things in their homes and that their homes are well decorated. The problem is the neglect of the house of the Lord. There's an absence of concern for things that are spiritual and things that are eternal. Right? What's going to last forever? Are your homes going to last forever? How long are our homes here in Florida going to last? Sometimes I wonder if, ten, if they might live uh, last 10 years the way some of them are going up, right? 
How does that compare to eternity? What should take priority? When you're not thinking about life eternal, what consumes you then would be your own comfort. And that's where the problem is. The people of Israel are more concerned with the condition and comforts of their home than they are with the condition of the Lord's home, the Lord's house. And again, that's not a problem that's unique to Haggai's day. Jesus addressed this issue on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. It says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart shall be also. The first surefire way to begin backsliding is to be cultivating a mind, uh, an earthly mindedness. The second surefire way to begin backsliding is to be discontent. Now Haggai gives us a picture, five pictures of discontentment. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You're, you clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in bags with holes. Here are five illustrations. Five things that illustrate that the return doesn't satisfy. You plant the seeds. But the harvest that you expect to come in, the, the harvest, the, the produce doesn't amount to what you expected. You eat because you're hungry, and yet you never get to that place that's full, where you're full. I remember Thanksgiving, we used to uh, talk about this. Uh, Thanksgiving, after you sit down and you have your, your big meal, we used to call those no walkers. Right? No walkers. I can't walk. I'm so stuffed. I'm full. I've eaten so much right? that I'm just going to sit here. Now, that might fall into the category of gluttony, but here what he's talking about is just the opposite. You eat, but you're never satisfied. The food that you're taking, it it never satisfies the hunger. He says you drink, but the thirst never goes away. You put on clothes because it gets cold, yet the chill of the night still bites. You save your money, but you never achieve the goal that you need the money for. Now, we can take these things and and interpret them and understand them as merely physical problems. And to be sure, some of these difficulties are are difficulties that Israel had to deal with physically. Even though we also see they had wainscoting and paneling in their houses. But Haggai's instruction here in verse 5 points us to understand this is not merely in terms of of the physical realities, but this is addressing the conditions of their heart, too. This phrase, consider your ways, 
there in verse 5. Literally translated, it says, direct your heart to your ways. And he's saying, examine yourself. Why is it that you're not satisfied? You ever known people that will go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing? They're searching, they're looking, they're trying all sorts of things because they're lacking something. And no matter where they go, they can't find it. I think one of the great lies that the church is starting to deal with, and I think it's only going to get worse, we'll have to deal with it more and more, is that people are told if they are true to themselves, they'll be happy. Just be true to yourself. Isn't that the great lie of, of, of transgenderism? Of the whole LGBTQIA++? Right? If you're just true to yourself, then you'll be happy. And that's a lie. The satisfaction that the depths of your soul is longing for can't be found in yourself. It can't be found in the pleasures and the treasures of this world. It can only be found in Christ. And this is what's behind the very notion of discontentment in Israel. They're looking for satisfaction in the desires of their heart. They're looking to find uh, to, to, to find that which will satisfy their hunger, their thirst, their, their checking account. And they're not finding it. But listen to what David says. Psalm 37, verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord to trust in Him, and He will act. If you want to start spiraling down in this pathway of destruction, look to the desires of your own heart. Look to something other than the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're sure to find yourself spiraling downward. Discontentment, just like earthly-mindedness, is a profound cause of backsliding and a profound cause of a faltering faith. So what's the solution? If your faith is weak or if you're wearied by obstacles, if you're longing for those days when your faith used to be vibrant, right? you remember those days? As believers, especially when you first come to the Lord, Christ, you first put your faith in Him, you find that forgiveness and that cleansing and you're on clap. It's a wonderful time. Life isn't lived on the mountaintops, even though we might long for it. But when you're in those dry valleys, those times of refreshment are nice and you want them, how do we recover to those times? Verse 7. Verse 7 is the same command that we found in verse 5 though the context is a little bit different, it says, consider your ways or direct your hearts to your ways. In verse 5, the command was of self-reflection and it was to look back on your history. Look back at all that you've done. You've invested, you've planted seeds, you've eaten, you've, you've, you've drank. And, and, and what's been the result of all of that? Of all your hard work? What, what, what's come about because of that? 
an emptiness, a void? Verse 7 now, taking that same command, instead of being uh, oriented towards what is in the past, is now consider your ways. What's the direction of your heart going forward? Not what have you been doing, but what will you be doing? What's your goal, your objective, your purpose? What are you about? Verse 8 is God's answer to this question. God says to these people, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may glorify, be glorified, says the Lord. Now God's not merely saying that if you build the physical temple that everything will be fine and dandy. He's not saying that uh, if you build this physical building, that that's going to be sufficient. It's not about completing a work project or a construction project. It's about setting all of life into its proper relationship with the Lord Almighty. It's interesting that the name used of God here when he speaks uh is the Lord of hosts. Right? You catch that? It's used four times in this passage, the Lord of hosts. This phrase is used almost exclusively by Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the three restoration prophets. You only find it a handful of times outside of them. But in these five authors, you find it well over a hundred, hundred times. Well over, close to two hundred times. The name of God here is a reference to God's universal dominion. Jehovah of hosts. Jehovah of hosts. He ranks above all beings. All beings in heaven and on earth. And all beings are going to be accountable to Him. God is declaring to Israel that what is most important is this covenant relationship. And God's declaring that He delights in His people when His covenant relationship is right. There's nothing more delightful to God in all of His creation than when His people worship Him rightly. So God is telling them to make His pleasure their pleasure. And don't think this is odd of God to do this because we instinctually do it in our own relationships. Spouses, we love to see each other happy, don't we? Right? We want our spouses to be happy. Parents, we want our kids to be happy. Children even want their parents to be happy. And we find pleasure when these relationships are in fact bringing about a happiness and a joy. Why should it not be that way with God Almighty? Why should we not find our greatest delight in God being delighted? Right? It, 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 it makes sense. In fact, Isaiah chapter 55 takes us down this very road. Isaiah 55, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me 
and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich foods. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. The roots of the very first catechism question, right? The Westminster Shorter Catechism come from here. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To find enjoyment in Him. To find pleasure in God being pleased. Where does that begin? Where does the pleasure of God begin in the lives of His creation? Where did it begin for Israel? I believe the answer is right worship. Giving to God the glory that He is due. Are you getting the message yet? Are you understanding what Haggai is about? Well, if not, Haggai's not quite done. He's got a little more that he says here. What are the consequences of not following God's commands? What are the consequences of continuing to backslide? If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are truly redeemed by Him, and yet you are continuing in this backslidden state, What's God going to do? What are the consequences of this? What is God willing to do? How far is He willing to let His people go before He rescues them from this spiral of destruction? Right? Because if God doesn't rescue someone from this spiral of destruction, what's going to happen? It ends in death. How does God rescue His people from this spiral? I believe the short answer is this. God withholds His blessings. He withholds His blessings from them. Verse 10. The heavens above, right? The, the heavens above, you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. Verse 11. God calls for a drought. God Himself calls for a drought. He brings it about. God is making life miserable. Augustine once said, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in You. And so for God's people, what God will do is He will remove those things which are a competitor to Him. Verse 9, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home... I blew it away. This idea of God blowing away, I think it's uh, drawn from from an agricultural uh, uh, practice, right? And when they're winnowing the wheat, when they're separating the wheat from the chaff, they're beating the the, the stalks of wheat, and then they're scooping up the the, the piles of the of, of the wheat, and they're tossing it up into the air, and the breeze blows across, and the chaff is blown away because it's lightweight. And it blows away and the seed which is heavy falls to the ground. And so drawing upon that imagery, God is saying, you brought it home, but I'm blowing it away. God says to these people, you would bring home your harvest, whatever there was of it. But God in His providence and His sovereignty minimizes it, and even makes it disappear. 
The very thing that the farmers are relying on for their livelihood, God was removing from them. God was blowing it away, not just the chaff, but the wheat. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Remember what Jesus said? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Where do we find life? In the word of God, in the word of Christ. When the pleasures and the treasures of this world become more important to God's people than, than rightly giving to God the glory that is due, you know what God does? He makes His people miserable. He begins to remove His blessings from them so that perhaps they might ask, is there something wrong? I came across an interesting fable this week. A little lamb and his mother passed by a pig pen every day on the way to their pasture. And the lamb looked longingly at the pigs wallowing in the mire and asked his mother if he could go and, and play in the mud too. And the mother said, no, sheep don't wallow. But he would look over those pigs every day. It looked like so much fun. It looked so comfortable and cool on those hot days. So one day when he was a little bit older, his mother had walked on ahead of him and this lamb decided to jump over the fence and to see what it was like to play in the mud. And the lamb stepped into the mud and felt the mud move, soak up to his ankles. It was cool. It was pleasant. So he went a little deeper, and the mud got on his belly, and it cooled him off, and he rolled over and over in the mud, and it was pleasing until the mud began to bake into uh, cake into his wool. And the lamb realized he was stuck, and he realized that the Sun was now beating down on him mercilessly. And he began to call out. Finally, the farmer came and rec uh, rescued him and returned him to the, to his mother there in the pasture. And she reminded him, sheep don't wallow. God's people are not to wallow in the mire of sin. We're not to wallow in the pleasures and treasures of this world. Instead, we're to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Matthew 6.33, right? Our hymn of preparation this morning. And why? Where does it lead to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness? I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, there's a lot of good... There's a good imagery in Hebrews chapter 10. In fact, why don't you look at it this afternoon. Hebrews chapter 10, 
takes us eventually to verses 35 and 36. It says, Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What is promised? What is promised by God to His people? The promise goes back before David. It goes back from David all the way back to Moses. And from Moses it goes back to Abraham. And I think from Moses, from Abraham goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I will be your God. You will be my people. And I will dwell amongst you. Nothing satisfies the soul like the pleasure of God. And the greatest pleasure of God the Father is in Christ the Son. Right? This is why our worship, I believe, must be our highest priority, the Lord will bring to ruin those who bring ruin to His house. But the Lord will bless those who delight in His house. When your faith is faltering, I would exhort you to follow David to the throne of grace. Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have asked of the Lord, and that one thing I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, that I may inquire in His temple. Why did God want Israel to rebuild this temple as their highest priority? so that they may come to Him and enjoy Him and find in Him the satisfaction that their souls desire. And the same is true for us. While we do not go to a physical temple, physical house, I mean, we do for worship, but we look to Christ, right? That's why in the New Jerusalem there is no temple, right? In heaven there is no temple because Christ is the temple. He is the one in whom we Meet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you that uh, you are restoring your people. Lord, we pray that your glory would be upon our hearts and our minds, that it would be your pleasure to be our pleasure. Lord, we ask that uh, we might not wallow in the things of this world, Instead, Lord, we we pray that we would set our eyes on the things to come. That we would set our eyes on Christ. That we would look to Him because He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, thank You that You do not leave Your people to fend for themselves, even when they get stuck. We pray, Lord, that You would restore Your people. If we are sliding backwards. We ask that you would have mercy upon us. Restore us in a right relationship with you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.